The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah 1-3 Hi, this is Pastor Jason from Christian Life Church in Waverly, New York. Welcome to Master's Crib, a weekly podcast where we interview pastors and leaders about the biblical teaching of authority. This program is designed to go alongside a personal Bible study aimed towards spiritual growth, biblical understanding, and a Christian worldview. Thanks for tuning in. All right, so today on episode 32, we have Brian Gadawa. Brian is a best-selling author of biblical novels. He's written several books, including The Chronicles of Nephilim, God Against the Gods, and The Imagination of God. He is also a Hollywood screenwriter and filmmaker. His works include The Visitation and To End All Wars. Brian, welcome to Master's Crib. Thanks for having me, man. Really appreciate it. So, you have all kinds of things going on in your life. You are involved in, in all kinds of things. So maybe if you could just tell our listeners uh, kind of where, you're, where your pick is in the ground right now, kind of what you're working on. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm, I've been working on um, independent films, you know, forever. And, uh, but in, in recent, within the recent decade, I've started writing uh, actually Bible novels, novels based on biblical stories but they're not just typical Sunday school type uh, stories, you know. Uh, I, I tell the story of Noah, Enoch, Abraham, David, but from a very different, unique sort of approach um, that uh, deals with the Nephilim, the giants, and the Watchers, and these weird supernatural phenomenon that I, I don't know. Maybe you may be familiar with by now, or your 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 audience or your congregation might be, maybe not. I don't know. But but I, I wanted to retell stories in the Bible that dealt with some giants, not just Goliath, but there are other giants that are in there, as well as the Watchers, these supernatural beings that are sort of, uh, God gave them authority over these different nations in, in the time of Deuteronomy, or actually at the time of Babel, but uh, Moses writes about it in Deuteronomy. So I wanted to sort of write, retell these biblical stories, but sort of show what might look like behind the veil of the spiritual world, you know? Uh, so it's a little bit of speculation in that sense, and some some fantastical images trying to to capture the supernatural and and uh, the theology that I'm that I'm trying to capture here. So that's a series of novels, as you mentioned, Chronicles of the Nephilim. But I also have the, my newest series is Chronicles of the Watchers, and it's very similar. It's very similar p- paradigm. It's basically the books that I didn't write in Chronicles of the Nephilim, and now I'm writing them. And my latest was release was uh, Jezebel, Harlot Queen of Israel, where I tell the story of Jezebel, Elijah, and 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 uh, some of those characters in that story and uh i'm, I'm really proud of it. i think it i think it relates a lot to today you know you've got child sacrifice which equates to abortion today right you've got a uh, socialist government um coming in from the from the city and and trying to corrupt the theocracy of israel so there's all these kind of elements that that are very that actually speak very relevantly for today. And I'm currently working on the latest novel, which is Moses Against the Gods of Egypt. So that won't be out till 20, till the beginning of next year. I'm right now in the middle of moving to Texas from LA. So a uh, big change in my life. Wow. And um, we'll see what happens next, the next phase, next stage. That's awesome. So how do you get into where you are now? Like what leads you to the point where you wanna write books and make movies? Yeah, well, so my calling is to basically tell stories that 
tell stories of truth that honor God and point to the kingdom of God in some way or another. And they don't have to be Bible stories. I just happened to find a fascinating theological thread in the Bible that was fantastical and supernatural as well as theological. And I just found it so fascinating I had to tell it, right? And so as a matter of fact, I've written other books on theology and such. And, and um, uh, you may be familiar with um, one of my short movies called Cruel Logic, which is I've also, like, I've also been in love with apologetics. And I'm going to be writing the novel of Cruel Logic soon. But basically, yeah, it's, it's, it's telling stories of truth that honor God or point to the kingdom in some way. And, you know, I started out in uh, movies, Hollywood, and um, I'm mostly writing books now. I still write some movies, but I just follow the opportunities, whatever God presents. And he's allowed me to have like best-selling status in, in Bible fiction categories on Amazon for years, which is uh, kind of an interesting, interesting world in and of itself, you know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you read any of that stuff. But... Yeah, so my books are kind of like Hollywood movies. You read them and it's got action, adventure, romance, everything, you know. And they're rated PG-13. You know, I don't, I deal with uh, sin because I think that the power of the redemption in your story is only as powerful as the accuracy with which you depict the sin from which you're being redeemed. See, if you, if you depict, if you communicate a, a notion of sinfulness that is weak and, and pathetic and uh, then people aren't going to get the sense that there is a need for, for salvation, redemption in Christ. And so your story or whatever it is, your art that you're doing, won't have the, the power of redemption that you really need to hit home in human hearts. Mm. Well, that is awesome. So when you finish everything at the end of the day, I know you just touched on this just a little bit, but when, when all is said and done, you're done writing, what do you hope and pray was accomplished with that day? Hmm. Well, to me, if you ever, you ever see that old classic movie, uh, Chariots of Fire? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, Eric Little, when he runs and, and he says that when I run, I feel his pleasure. <laughs> well, when I write, I actually am engaged in worship. It is an act of worship. Mm. It really is. You're interacting with the living God. You're, you're also communicating to him through your storytelling. And particularly when I'm work, working on Bible stories, you know, you're doing a lot of heavy focusing on God's word. And so it's, you know, it's, 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 it's getting into my heart and soul like nothing else ever does. You know, I mean, I could just read the Bible and it's helpful. But when I have to retell the story, I really have to dig deep and it really affects me. And then, of course, the writing of the story is a glorification of God. So as an artist, what I do, everything I do is done for the glory of God. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be religious, outwardly religious, like it could be a you know, quote, secular story, whatever. Like, you know, it could be a, m- a movie about marriage being positive, right? And that, in, in today's world, that simply, that stands out enough as a, as a Christian, you know, principle. Um, you know, but as it, as it happens, you know, I, I, the books I write, I'm, I'm very bold about uh, the truth that I know and I don't hide anything back. But I also don't, well, I don't write Christian books, you know, in the sense that I'm a writer and I'm Christian and my storytelling is theological, but... I don't write Christian novels or Christian books because it kind of has this notion of, you know, certain kind of genre of feel that people are expecting. And I don't really fit into that category. I'm kind of, you know, because of my uh, Hollywood background, I'm probably too secular for some Christians and too Christian for the secular world. So I'm in that in-between world, you know. (laughs) That's a hard place to be. 
For sure. Well, I really appreciate you. I appreciate your ministry. So I, I pray people are blessed by this. Let's just take a couple minutes, you and I, and tear into God's word. So I'm going to read uh, Acts 17, just 22 through 34, and it says this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who has made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of you, or excuse me, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this is he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them also was Dionysus and Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So, Brian... What exactly is, and you mentioned apologetics earlier, having a passion for this. What exactly are apologetics? Well, apologetics basically is the defense of the faith, and, and it's not in a sense of defensive, oh, I'm defending like, oh. It's, you know, defense is basically giving an account of why you believe what you believe. That's basically what it means. And its context is always, you know, is is to in, in interaction with the world. And the interesting thing about this chap, this um, passage in, in Acts 17 is, it's I believe it's the only passage in the in the Bible where you hear the gospel being preached to unbelievers. Mm. Like you know, all this, a lot of the interactions you have with in the Book of Acts and stuff, it's you know they're talking to other believing Jews. You know, and they may not believe in Messiah, but but they're talking to Jews. But this is the only one where they have the gospel to Gentiles, okay? And so that's what makes it unique and interesting because what can we learn from that in our modern day world, which is more like Acts 17, right? Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, a lot of apologists go to this chapter and try to, you know, draw from it. And every school of apologetics from presuppositionalism to evidentialism to what have you, uh, you know, claim this as their own and, and try to, you know, draw their, their uh, particular principles out of it. And there's some truth to all that, surely. But in, in more recent years, I had studied it and I, I started to discover that I think there's something much deeper than what most apologists are, are think is going on here. So most of modern day apologists, you know, it's it's 
you, you provide evidence to show the Bible's reliable, then what does the Bible say about Jesus, and then provide the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead so you can trust him and you can trust the Bible's words, you know, that kind of thing, and use logic and reason and, and these kinds of things. It's, it's philosophical discourse, all right? It's, mm-hmm. it's propositional discourse. You're, you're arguing in a rational way and you're trying to prove through logic and through reason and evidence your belief. And there, that's true. We, we all do that to some degree. But I don't think, I think that what Paul is doing here is something deeper. So he's addressing the Stoics, right? Now, they're, at the time, there's Stoics and the Epicureans, and they were both very influential. But for some reason, Paul seems to focus on the Stoics in this passage and what they taught. And most people go through there and they'll say things like, oh, yeah, see, look, he's, he's quoting philosophers like, uh, in him we live and move and have our being, right? Mm-hmm. That's from Epimenides, the Stoic philosopher who wrote in Critica that very phrase, right? Or he says, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And in there he's quoting from Aratus, the Stoic philosopher, mm-hmm. in his Phenomena where it talks about, uh, you know, uh, we begin with Zeus and all men come from Zeus. We are truly his offspring. So they tend to approach this passage philosophically, right, or propositionally. And I think that Paul's doing something much deeper than that. He's actually doing storytelling apologetics. And I go through this passage verse by verse in my book, The Imagination of God. I have a whole chapter on it because it was that important to me when I, when I was discovering this. And, and I thought, this is, this is really important because he's not, He's not just, um, you know, like, you know, modern day philosophical debate includes things like epistemology, how do we know what we know, you know, ontology, the nature of reality, morality, the nature of ethics. These are the things we talk about, and that's good and fine, but there's, there's what I would call narrative apologetics, which is learning how to story everything you're saying, learning how to tell stories, learning how to communicate truth through stories. Now, there are different ways of doing this. It's not all the same, but, and many people, some people are better storytellers than others, but I, I go through each of these verses in the book. We're not going to do that here because we don't have the time, but, but the, the essence of what I do is I show that he's not just drawing out stoic doctrines of philosophy, you know, like he says, you know, um, I proclaim to you the God who made the world everything. It does not live in temples made by man. Well, there's a sense in which the, the Jewish scriptures say that, but specifically the, Stoic, the Stoics were famous for saying those very things. Temples are not to be built to the gods. Zeno said that. Euripides said that. The Athenian tragedian. So <coughs> there are all these examples, but my point is, is he'll, he is drawing from the Stoics, but if you follow what's being done here, it's a story. It's a narrative. And the Stoic narrative is very specific. Now, it has certain doctrinal elements, but it's the story that counts. And the story is roughly this, that you know, the Stoics believed that, um, uh, in terms of religious beliefs, they would say that, you know, what, what's the problem with mankind, right? <laughs> problem with mankind, you know, because we look around us and everything's messed up. And they would say basically that we all have the spark of divinity in us, and that's called Zeus, right, or mm-hmm. Logos. And the problem is, is that man, becomes ignorant. He, he becomes ignorant and he doesn't know that divinity and then he starts to act in a more animalistic way or such. And therefore that results in all the problems we have in the world. And, and so the, the stoic idea was that 
we need to realize, we need to be enlightened to the spark of divinity within us. And we need to realize that it's Zeus, but more specifically, Zeus is not necessarily a personal God, but they use the name Zeus, but they, Stoics actually meant the Logos, which is the underlying rational order of the universe. So they were very logical and philosophical, see? And they sort of played with the Greek religious system themselves and they re, redefined terms. So when a Stoic would say Zeus, they actually meant not that personal God that, you know, that people might think really exists, but they were referring to the logical order, the logos of the world, right? So in a very real sense, the Stoics were subverting Greek religion. And so Paul comes along, oh, and by the way, the Stoics then also, you know, they believe that there was no resurrection. There's just, one, you know, there's one life, you die, and then you're gone. And maybe there might be a Hades, but Hades is more of a metaphor, and most of them didn't believe that either. So, uh, and but they did believe in what was called the Great Conflagration. And what that was, was that the the universe ultimately ends up burning up in fire not fires of judgment though this is the fires of cleansing and renewal and then like a phoenix out of the ashes it gets rebirthed again so it's it's a cyclical the modern day notion of scientific notion of the oscillating universe would be very similar in other words that everything gets destroyed and then and then comes into creation again and just grows and destroys it so it's cyclical right so it's very different from how we would see it, and the fires are not the fires of judgment. So those are just some of the elements, and and Paul is drawing on. Oh, so so this idea is right that that humanity has to realize their ignorance, you know, become enlightened and recognize that divinity, and and you know, um, and recognize there's no resurrection of the dead. So all there is is this life. So that's how we have to draw from this life as much as we can, etc. So those are just some of the elements, and, and everything he says here is rooted in some quote or some reference to a, a Stoic. But you see the storyline. Talks he starts with the um, you know the religious temples. He talks about how he made you know the the creator made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, you know, and it's the determining the allotted periods and boundaries. It's like that was a very common uh, notion in, in Greek understanding they called it the universal brotherhood of mankind but here's the thing as paul's drawing from these stoic beliefs he doesn't mean them the same way that the stoics mean them so for instance he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth well he's referring to he's not even referring to adam is he? he's referring to noah technically right mm. but the stoics actually would say something similar to that, but they actually believe, no, that all persons are traced back in their origins to being descendants of the gods. So it's a very, very different, right? But he's still using similar language. He's not, he's not telling them where he differs. He's only finding a point of common ground, something that is common, but it's a very shallow commonness. He's drawing them in into the story, and he's sort of making them agree with him like he's sort of saying saying in a way that they would agree with him even though he has a different definition mm. he talks about you know uh, of course that in him we live and move and have our being right that's everyone knows that from stoic philosophers but the thing is is the way the stoics believed that was they believed that was like you know um zeus is not dead because all, zeus is in all men so 
you know, in other words, this idea of the Logos is not gone because the Logos is in all of us and we are here. And so in him, in, in that Logos, we live and move and have our being. Well, that's very different from how Paul would, what he means when he says that, because he's talking about Yahweh, the creator God, sovereignly in control of everything, right? It's a personal being, very, very different. And we are his offspring, right? Well, you know, Paul very clearly said, or Jesus said there are, there are children of the devil and children of God, right? So there, yeah. there's a distinct difference. Not all people are God's offspring. And so Paul might be saying this in, in the sense of, hey, we're all created by God, so we're all his children in a very generic sense. But elsewhere we know that Paul teaches very clearly that the children of God are very distinguished from the children of Satan, of the devil, those who don't believe in Messiah, right? But my point here is as, we're, as we go through it, you see he's not making that difference clear. And so what he's doing, he's tell, retelling the stoic narrative, so to speak, but he has, he's, he's drawing them in with the story that they're familiar with. And then he talks about how, um, what is it where he says, uh, you know, that they should seek God and perhaps in verse 27, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That Greek language in there is about groping for God. It's reminiscent of the the uh, groping of the Cyclops in in, uh, uh, in the story of Odysseus, right? Mm. And 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 the and the Greeks or the Stoics would talk about we are ignorant and groping, right? But now when Paul writes about ignorance in his in his letters, it's a willful ignorance, right? It's a moral ignorance. Mm. You know, they they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But in the Stoic notion, it's more an, a naive ignorance, a knowledge ignorance, right? Very very different. But this is my point. So he's, he's finding common ground. He's telling a story that they can relate to that's their story in a sense, but he means it differently. And, and then, but then he gets to the point at the end where he starts to do the twist. You know that point in a movie where you're watching, like remember The Sixth Sense, and you're watching it and you finally realize he talks to dead people. Oh my gosh, Bruce Willis is dead, you know? <laughs> That's what's going. That's what goes on here, and that's what good storytelling is. You bring them in with something they disagree, then you twist and show you've been misunderstanding the whole time. Then you look back and you realize, oh, I can see now. Like in the movie Sixth Sense, right? You go, you suddenly start rethinking the whole movie. And you realize how it was there, but you didn't see it. Well, Paul then says, you know, he goes through all this stuff. You know, God is not formed by the imagination of man. All agreeing with the Stoics, but then he finally says this. He goes. God overlooks the ignorance in verse 31. He's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and, and, and has risen, raised him from the dead. That's when all of a sudden what he's saying is completely opposed to everything that Stoics believe in, right? And, and that's the twist. You don't give that twist until you draw them in and they're agreeing with you, so to speak. They're, you know, they're following the story. They're following the narrative. And then you you throw it on them because if you just slap them right up front, they're like, likely to just walk away. Just you know that's ridiculous, whatever. But the point here is that even then, I find it very interesting how Paul is. It, wait, is this Paul that's talking? Am I? Yeah, it's right. Okay, I thought for a minute there. Wait, was it Peter? No. Okay, so even at that point, Paul does something that most evangelists of today would call him a bad evangelist. He doesn't name the name of Jesus. Mm. That's very, that's very, he's doing it significantly. He's doing it for a reason. 
And um, but I find that interesting because, like I say, you know, this, these are some we, you know, in modern day Christians, we tend to feel like everything has to be explicit and and outright and, and understandable all up front and all that. But people need to be led, and and the way you lead them is to tease them, is to give them mystery and to draw them in, etc. And that's the power of how storytelling does that. But even at this point, he says he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. Okay, they would never agree that there's, you know, only the gods would, would judge us and, and not a single man. And here's, the, here's that, that twist I was telling you about, but he never names Jesus. He just says by a man. Mm. Now, does that mean that he's not being a good evangelist or is he doing something else? I think what he's doing is, I think at this point, they know enough of him. There's context that they know it's Jesus. Um, that especially when he says by raising him from the dead, but this exemplifies the power of how storytelling or narrative can draw people into the truth without having to be as explicit as you feel you have to be. What I mean by that is, if the context is, if the context leads them to it, and they are able to discover for themselves who the name is that can actually have more power. I'm not saying that you never talk about Jesus, you never say his name. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying recognize that there's, there's power and reasons, particularly when you're telling a story, not to give it all away up front. And even if you're talking about Jesus, you might want to draw people in without being specific because if they conclude, if they realize themselves, oh, he's talking about Jesus. Hmm. They, as the listeners, have... You have not told them what to think or believe. You've let them discover it for themselves. And that's the power of good storytelling. And uh, I do have one example of this from my movie, To End All Wars. If, if uh, anyone has a chance to see it, you can see it on Amazon. stars Kiefer Sutherland. It's a true story about World War II prisoners of war. But anyway, the, we have these allied prisoners of war and they're the Japanese. And what happens is they're suffering and they, they get a Bible in the camp and they decide they want to teach the Bible. And the, by teaching the Bible, they learn how to love one another and you know, ultimately love their enemy. It's a really powerful story. But what happened is in the, in the scenes that we had him, we would, we'd have him reading the Bible, says, you know, Jesus said, you know, love, your, love your neighbor as yourself, that kind of thing. We had a few of those moments. And we kept it to a minimum because we didn't want to push it, right? But we realized in the editing that we didn't need to say it. People knew it was a Bible. And they, there was a picture that showed Jesus on a cross in the Bible once, real quick. So when you just so we cut out the him saying Jesus said, and he just says, shows him reading the Bible and says, "Love your neighbor," you know, and everyone knows that's who he's talking about. See, and I thought that the movie was powerful on affecting unbelievers because they were able, they didn't have it preached at them, they didn't have it pushed on them. They realized themselves. That's Jesus speaking, and I can figure that out for myself because it's something they themselves can sort of, you know, realize or, or discover, mm. that's what grabs hold of them much better than just telling this is what you have to believe, right? So that's just a quick, you know, uh, um, uh, just like sort of a quick general description. I go into all the details in the book, The Imagination of God, but, but I think that it'll help people to see also in that book how, the, how storytelling, I talk a lot about how God uses storytelling throughout the whole Bible to communicate truth and to communicate himself in many ways that many Christians are not very accepting of, but God himself actually is.
That's amazing. So we, there are a lot of believers that uh, have, you know, gifts and talents that they think couldn't be used for ministry, such as, you know, maybe they want to write a book, but they don't necessarily want to write a book on theology. But um, they can use the storytelling method to tell the gospel, even without specifically sitting someone down. And I think that's probably like a confusion that we've given everyone with a lot of these bigger ministries that are teaching apologetics now is that we got to get them to pray the prayer. You have to get them to pray the prayer today. This is how it how it happens but uh like you said they have to be led there and that can't always happen in just one conversation so why is it brian do you think that so many people believe that apologetics comes from the pulpit like that this is the place where apologetics comes from not from everyday life not from out in the marketplace not from storytelling although we're told this why is it that so many believers believe that this right here is where it comes from well, you know, I think that, that uh, there's a fundamental um, understanding that I think is not quite accurate and biblical in that, that they are, they're, they're not seeing themselves as priests, as mm. holy priests and kings. And the Bible says we are all kings and priests. And so that means we all have the, it's not just that we have the glory of the, uh, of the, uh, the status it's that we have the responsibilities as as kings and priests to be able to be the ones to bring that message out and to bring the atonement to the world, right? Mm. So that's the first off, I think, that seeing the pastors being the one who takes care of that stuff is in general, it's just not biblical. And, and we have such a higher, greater calling by God's word himself, you know? Mm. You are a nation of kingdom, kings and priests, right? A, mm. a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, right? And so that's, I think, is one of the first things, but also, the idea of apologetics is oftentimes biased towards this philosophical, you know, propositional arguing and logic and empiricism or and evidentialism and all this. And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that many Christians have compartmentalized apologetics into that into that little compartment, and they don't realize that you know there's a lot of of power in you know in in to persuade mm. in stories and you know for me i had studied in my book imagination of god i talk a lot about this my, my own personal testimony because i had i'd gotten obsessed with apologetics and so you know it was all but it was all just this logical reasoning and destroying philosophical arguments etc and you know there's just something sort of missing in that and over time, I started to realize that the imagination, God uses imagination maybe more than he uses reason. And, you know, again, this is not either or, this is both and, but we've neglected the imagination side and focused exclusively on the rational side. Anyway, <clears throat> when I used to, you know, obsess over rational apologetics, uh, in case you're wondering, I, I still love reading philosophy and stuff. I'm still philosophical. It's just... I, I feel like I, I have a better balance now that I've included imagination into my Christian walk and apologetics and everything. Anyway, I used to think like, you know, because I would know all the, all the arguments and part of the elements of logic is that, or, or shall we say an invalid argument is, is a subjective personal story. You know, like you tell, well, this is what happened to me and like, well, that's, invalid because it's subjective and uh, people of opposing viewpoints can say the same thing. They've had the same experience or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And technically that's true. However, 
in the Bible, when people give their testimonies, people get saved. And so I used to sort of downplay my personal testimony because it was, you know, it's like, well, whatever. But what's more important is to prove the Trinity and prove the, you know, the, the, you know, the reliability of the Bible, blah, blah, blah. Walk them through those steps. Well, I, I now have a different view where I think a, a personal testimony is something that everyone can do. And that, what is that? That's your story. story. Yeah. So if you learn a little bit about storytelling, and I, I do that in the book, I teach a little bit about that, but you learn how to tell a good story. The other book that I actually help people learn how to tell stories is Hollywood Worldviews. But you, you, you realize that the personal testimony is actually just as legitimate and sometimes more pertinent, depending on the person you're talking to, uh, than, than just a rational argument, which is why I now always make, you know, when I'm in a situation with an unbeliever of some kind and I'm talking about the gospel, I try to always get to tell a little bit about how God changed my life. Because yeah, it's subjective. Yeah, it's logically invalid, but it's biblical and people get saved through it. So it is a legitimate form of persuasion. And these are these are some of the elements where it's not irrational, it's just non-rational so you we are creatures of both reason logic as well as imagination and story and i think god is the one who perfectly combines those he you know and you think about the word made flesh in john one right so the logos logic right made flesh that's incarnation that is existential which is story mm. so jesus is the perfect combination of both word and image right mm. so both logic and reason and story and imagination mm. and that's why i think our we should we should uh, you know seek to have a faith very similar to that live our live our christian lives that way mm. and so when you're engaging in defending the faith or apologetics you know consider how you can tell your testimony or consider how you can you know like one may one one way maybe you know picking some movies that maybe capture some truths you know that that you might want to communicate for instance for me one of the classics for forever it's an old movie now i guess but the matrix right you know when the matrix you took the red pill and he wakes up he was and he realizes he was a slave and everybody else is a slave and they don't know it i'm like that was the perfect picture of being born again as Absolutely. a christian that's exactly how i felt and that's exactly what happened to me and so I'll use those, I'll draw from stories, draw from movies, draw from images, uh, tell your own story. Mm. Um, and if you're, going to, if, if you're going to address a philosophy, like say you're talking to someone and they're, oh, I don't know, um, maybe they're, they're, uh, they're a humanist or something, you know? And, and so humanism believes that the, you know, the problem with mankind is religion. So if we get, you know, it's creation, fall, redemption. Every worldview has a narrative or a story for creation, fall, redemption. In other words, how were things originally supposed to be? What screwed it up? And then how to get back, <laughs> you know? Every philosophy. So if you're talking to someone, try, try to figure out what is, their under, what is their story of understanding of what's wrong with the world, how do we fix it? How do we get back to utopia or whatever, you know? And, and if you can understand their story, then you can try to connect to them on that level. 
mm. and you know bring to them the gospel in some form or manner. Oh, that is wonderful. So I just want to tie just this last little uh, last little question together here. So um, as many Christians know, most of the Christian movies um, that have come out in the past 10, 15 years, I mean, they're trying, but they're just not very good. There's not very good acting. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I know I'm probably beating some people up over this, but um, they're just not really good movies. And they're actually, a lot of them, in my opinion, are, are not even really good stories. Uh, yeah. It seems as though we once owned the arts as Christians and we've given all that up. Would, do you think that's a fair, a fair assessment? Yeah, I do. I, I would say this though, I would qualify it by saying I've t spoken to a lot of Christian colleges around the country and I'm, I've been impressed at how many young people actually do get it. Those who are going into media and into, you know, Hollywood or, you know, filmmaking, storytelling and filmmaking, that's the world that I'm in. And so when I t t talk to these kids, I see that a lot of them actually do get it. The younger generation mm. is much more in tune and I'm very hopeful in that sense. But in terms of the old guard and where I come from, you know, there still is, you know, in general, I, I think we've gotten better, but in general, I think Christianity, Christians still are obsessed with the rational propositional side. So when they go to tell a story, they see movies, for instance, as a illustrated sermon, mm. rather than seeing the story not as a sermon, a sermon is a separate kind of thing that you, that's legitimate and you do in different contexts but it's not, it's not a sermon. And so you don't have to follow all the clarification principles and all the, you know, whatever that you do with, with the sermon. And you don't have to be as explicit because if you understand storytelling, you realize that, like I said before, storytelling, if done well, brings the listener or the audience in and they realize it for themselves. Otherwise, they're gonna feel preached at. And so the problem is, is a lot of Christians feel so concerned that we have to make the gospel clear, the truth clear, because if they, it's not clear, then they're not going to get saved, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I, that comes from a good place, but I think it's, it's naive and it's destructive because what that means is you, you're preaching and when you, when you go to a movie, I don't, I don't want to see a sermon. If I want to go to a sermon, I'll go to church. When I go to a movie, I want to see a good story. So don't preach to me. Let me discover for myself, see? And that's the problem. Christians are, have, have not found that balance of, of word and image, imagination. And they feel that word has to be superior all the time. You know? And um, again, this is not inherently bad. It just creates the imbalance that we see in a lot of these bad Christian movies. And so, yeah, I, I too have been discouraged but I want to see, but I also want to, I also feel like they're getting a little bit better. You know, there's yeah. some good stuff like, uh, the chosen that series by Dallas Jenkins. That's, that's been a really good, um, little production and some other individual movies. Why is it that it's taken us so long to come around and to realize that, uh, that we can take hold of storytelling, that we can engage people with the gospel in these ways without having some cheesy story about an Amish girl that runs away from her family told again and again and again. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, that's a big, long story. I talk all about it in my book, okay. The Imagination <laughs> of God. Sorry to keep pitching it, but no, it, no, it no. really, if you want to get in more, if, you, if this is interesting, like, wow, I really haven't heard stuff like this too deep. That's where I really lay it all out for you. And, and I think that that's rooted in the Protestant Reformation, to be honest with you. I'm a Protestant, but I'm willing to acknowledge that, that Roman Catholics are better in that they've retained more of a storied and a more of an understanding of the imagination. Um, and of course, they have with it their own, in my opinion, uh, 
fallacies because of it, they go too far in that direction. But pro the Protestants went too far with the um, abstraction and, and philosophical speculation of God and rejected, you know, they were reacting against the, they were iconoclastic, they were reacting against the idolatry of the icons and all that, but they went the other extreme and got rid of all of them, right? That kind of a mentality. And so they, they, they made their churches devoid of any beauty. So, you know, there's a long history on that. And I, I like I said, I write about it in the book, but, but the, the point is, is that we have gotten away from imagination out of fear of idolatry. And, and it's a legitimate fear because, you know, if you make an image and worship it, that's not idolatry. And image is the root word of imagination. So there's danger with imagery, but there's danger with reason as well. Mm. We, are, we can also worship uh, reason and apologetics be can become a false idol in that we are more rooted in these argumentations rather than in the reality of the Holy Spirit and the living God who we have a relationship with. Wow, that is wonderful. By the way, I speak from experience. All this stuff that I'm saying, it's because I have failed and I've seen this in my own life. Mm. And, and so I have had to repent about it and I still have to watch myself because mm. I still love philosophy and reasoning and rationality and, and all that stuff. And, and I can tend to, to you know, sort of start to see God as a worldview, God as a philosophy, rather mm. than the person who I'm relating with. Mm. And that's the danger. That is so wonderful. Well, Brian, I really, really appreciate your time. And I uh, just want to let our listeners know how they can find out more about you, your ministry, how they can get a hold of your books, your movies. Well, uh, Godawa.com, that's my name, G-O-D-A-W-A.com. As, as my website, there's, I, it's, it's, not, it's not a boring website. It's very interesting. I talk about all my books and series. I have a bunch of pictures, a lot of free articles related to the material I write about. So if you want to learn about all the stuff I'm doing, lots of cool stuff you can find there on the website. If, 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 you want, if you're interested in buying any of the books, go to Amazon. I'm exclusively on Amazon. All my books, most every book I have is in ebook, paperback, and audiobook. Mm. So you can get that all at Amazon. And Amazon does, gives a lot of descriptions of the books anyway. So you can go straight there if you want and, and still learn a lot about it. Just type in my name, Brian Godow. It's very unique. So you'll get all my, you'll get my little author's page there. But yeah, that's where you can get it at, at good, cheap prices, I might say. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on Master Trip. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me.